You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, I'm going to be sitting here on my own because nobody else wanted to join me. Hi, I'm JR. Oh, and that's Despicable Lee, a little plastic character free from McDonald's from the film Despicable Me 2. And that's the reason I've called him Despicable Lee, because he'll be standing in for the rest of the Blue Box crew uh, on this Boxing Day, the day after the time of the Doctor. Now, sitting here on my own, trying to do a podcast is not going to be easy and so what I'm going to do is just record a very short episode. Uh, We've had quite a few emails so I think probably what I'll do is go through those emails, answer a few of the points and leave a review of Time of the Doctor until next time. I mean, if you really want to find out what I thought of Time of the Doctor, you can always navigate to starburstmagazine.com and find my review of the episode there. And I suppose once I'm, I've got the rest of the Blue Box crew back together, then next week we'll do a proper review of the episode. So for now, I'm just going to go through a few of those emails and reply to the points therein and maybe just throw in a few thoughts about Time of the Doctor while I do. Oh, speaking of which, somebody accused me today on Facebook of only pretending to like Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who because otherwise I wouldn't get interviews with people who work on Doctor Who if they thought that I didn't like what they do. And the simple truth of the matter is, A, most of the people I do interview about Doctor Who don't actually work on the current version of the programme, and B, what kind of a person would imagine that the only reason I would like current Doctor Who is because I would have to pretend to? Does this person not think that you know, a worldwide audience that's bigger than the audience for Doctor Who has ever had is entirely made up of people who don't like the show or are only pretending to like the show? Well, never mind. Here's an email from Ian Martin. He says, Well, it wasn't as bad as the end of time, but it felt a pretty poor end to Matt Smith's reign. It's like the moth loosened his grip on storytelling after series 6 and from 7B onwards. It's felt ominously hollow and unsatisfying. Still, it's a kid's show, and they hopefully loved it. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Well, okay, there's Ian saying he didn't like it quite as much as he's presumably liked some previous Doctor Who's, and Stephen Moffat's in series 5 and series 6 and presumably the first half of series 7 I I do have to agree that from 7B onwards there's been a change in Doctor Who but I don't think necessarily it's a change for the worst I just think it's become a probably more subtle experience actually oddly enough I think Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who across the first two and a half years became 
more and more in your face and that from probably the snowmen or definitely the bells of St. John but certainly from the start of Clara's story onwards it's just become a bit more laid back and a little bit lower key and I don't think that's a bad thing I think it's perhaps an unexpected thing given that we're just had the anniversary year and we've had uh, Matt Smith's regeneration story and for a regeneration story I thought it was particularly low-key which was a surprise but having said that oddly enough Doctor Who fans have been calling for a low-key regeneration story and I think they don't especially like the fact that they got it yes there were weeping angels and the silence and Daleks and Cybermen and even Sontarans and so on and so forth so I suppose there was a discord between what it looked like it would be on the surface, which would be a huge, great monster mashup story of the kind that Stephen Moffat might have done in the style of Russell T. Davis, had Russell T. Davis ever actually done any stories like that. But Stephen Moffat has kind of used that monster mashup, bombastic, big story type element as a disguise for the more the more subtle and intimate and character-driven stories that he's been telling. I think Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis have both actually told a similar kind of Doctor Who in that the plots themselves are almost secondary to the character stories. And, I mean, this is very true with, Stephen, with uh, Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who. If the character story is more important than the plot then if the plot has to take a back seat to the character story in terms of the logic then so be it but the character story is more important it was way more important to Stephen to Russell T Davis to write a character story that made sense than it did to him to write a plot that made sense and if you don't like that I guess you don't like that but to me in modern storytelling, modern televisual storytelling, I think that makes more sense. I think people would be less accepting of, uh, you know, plots that made sense, but characters that didn't in this day and age. And I think Stephen Moffat's just carried on with that, really. He's making a Doctor Who that has the Doctor as its central character for a change, rather than just somebody who sort of haplessly arrives, not knowing what's going on, finds out what's going on, solves it and leaves. Stephen Moffat's written four years of Doctor Who, where the Doctor himself is a central character, and so are the companions. And I don't have a problem with that. Doctor Who changes to survive, and Doctor Who will change again, and it will be something else again. But insofar as I'm concerned, to have a period where this is the central conceit of the show is not a problem, and I don't think for most of the rest of the 77 million people, or however many it is who are watching the show, I don't think it's especially a problem for them too. Anyway, we'll move on to Andrew Moore. He says, Feeling bereft, from the exhilaration of November the 23rd to this awful feeling of squandered opportunities, the whole thing just felt like a sentimental mess, with the whole of season 6 dealt with in a single line. I really felt cheated that the chin did not get a better send-off. 
After putting the Time Lords back in the picture, it seems all it takes to spark them into action is a human shouting through a crack in reality to spark them into action. This is the first never negative thing I've ever sent to you, but I really did not see this coming. Normally about this time on Christmas night, I would be watching the special again, but can't summon up the will. This is a gut reaction on first watch, but really can't see it changing much. And in reply to Andrew, I think that if and when he does watch it again, his opinion on it might change. Very often you get with Doctor Who an experience whereby your expectations of an episode are never going to be lived up to because your expectations of the elements that you know are going to be in the episode are by putting, by imposing your own ideas of what you would do with those elements onto what you think the episode itself will be but if you come to it afterwards knowing what how those ep elements were dealt with knowing what the writer has done with uh, those elements and with the story and not imposing your own expectations on it anymore i think you'll see it as a whole lot better than you perhaps did on first viewing i think it was a good sp good send off for matt smith i think as the culmination of four years of basically a single story, the culmination of four years of this sort of fairy tale logic version of Doctor Who, I think this whole Star Wars meets Doctor Zeus thing is exactly what Stephen Moffat's been doing for the last four years. And I do think that, you know, in terms of Harry's finisher story, in spite of the fact that I don't think it's quite the consolidation and is quite as consistent as it might have been i do think it was everything that it should have been and i think maybe part of the problem is that stephen moffat has written this star wars meets fairy tale thing that he's been doing for the last four years and jamie payne the director his previous only doctor who is hyde he did a very good job of that, but that was a very simple story, and I'm not quite sure he was perhaps the best chap for this. I think his directing of the actors was fantastic. Matt Smith was wonderful, given so much in this episode more to do than he usually has to do in an episode, and being brilliant. But I don't think Andrew Payne knitted the rest of the elements together as well as perhaps somebody else might have. Well, that's only a small quibble, and overall I think the episode really did what it needed to do in, you know, a, about as good a manner as we might have expected. But let's move on. We'd been sent as a cartoon, and in the cartoon he's got Strax dressed up as Santa Claus with little Amelia Pond sitting on his knee, and there's a caption, Foolish boy! You do not need this raggedy Dr. Barbie doll. You require anti-personnel mines, magna grenades, automated laser monkeys, and plasma cannons. After all, you are from the North. Santaran Claus has spoken. Well, <laughs> thanks for that, Weird Bean. I thought it was rather lovely. Okay, we'll move on to our non-Christmassy emails. Uh, Matt Barber. Dear JR and Minions... I'll just let the use of the word minions sink in for a second there. Another email. I'm currently, in, I'm currently engaged in a debate on Facebook concerning Stephen Moffat. 
The topic of this particular thread is interesting. Some fans appear to be suggesting that the day of the Doctor is a demonstration of how Moffat's ego has grown so large that it threatens to destroy the series. I have to say I was a little surprised by this. I would suggest that by producing a story that is both critically and commercially successful, and one that has resulted in the greatest number of column inches about Doctor Who in a week than I've seen in my lifetime, Moffat is taking a curious approach to killing off the series. Maybe he's employing some immensely subtle but malevolent long game. I'd be interested to hear your opinions. It may be my own fault for engaging in these conversations, but my feeling towards Goodwill have survived Time Lash, Dimensions in Time and Matthew Waterhouse. It's now being threatened by undebatable fundamentalist fans. Love, Matt. And bringing it back to the Christmas special, once again, I agree. Uh, killing off the series? I don't think so. Making it more popular than it's ever been? That's what seems to be happening to me. I don't think the majority of Doctor Who's huge audience particularly watches it because of its science fiction content. I think they watch it because they find the Doctor and the companions engaging characters. They like the fantasy element. And note, that's the fantasy element they like rather than the science fiction element. And it's just a damn good, entertaining, engaging series on a Saturday night. It's not supposed to be something that you sit and watch and spend hours and days and weeks afterwards thinking about. It's not supposed to be something that you look at in such depth as to render all the fun of it uh, irrelevant. It's just supposed to be something that entertains. And on that level, I think Stephen Moffat's version of Doctor Who is as entertaining as Doctor Who's ever been. People complain about the fact that the characters speak in witticisms. I really don't see it as a problem. Having people say this is not realistic. Yeah, okay, Doctor Who isn't realistic. I don't see it as a problem that it's also fun. I really don't understand the problem people have with it being funny, with it being entertainment, with it being witty. Anyway, there you go. I'm completely in agreement with Matt. Stephen Moffat is doing anything but killing off Doctor Who. Al, no. I have two emails from Al. Dear and the boys and JR. Well, that script Doctor episode was lovely. Thanks. I'm surprised to hear the Scaro pronunciation debate still raging, albeit politely. I was of the impression that taking into account Terry Nation's upbringing, along with his years as Hancock's main gagster, the only possible pronunciation is Scaro, or Scaro. I can understand why people might think it'd be Scaro, or Scaro, but that's obviously wrong. It's Scaro. Glad to help. Obviously, Al... This is not quite so easy to follow in printed form as it would be if you'd have sent me an audio email. Anyway, Alno continues, I should probably apologise to Hollow Poro, seeing as I was spelling his, hers, their, our name wrong after all. We've mated on Facebook now, I think that's the correct term, so we truly can't be the same person, unless that's the twist ending. Sorry if this is more disjointed and harder to read than usual. One of the other commuters is reading over my shoulder and offering editing suggestions. It's not helping. 
In an unconnected note, everything longer than a haiku that I've tried to write about Doctor Who recently has been leaked all over by the BBC. I wish they'd get that scene too. Right, best be off. I know I haven't given Mr Gatiss a going over, but I've been advised to remove that paragraph by my fellow commuter. This is the point. I feel I should offer you festive humbugs or something. It's also my stop. Thanks for 2013. Looking forward to the next one. Keep up the fine work. Yours humbuggeringly, Al. P.S. I was just kidding. It's Scarrow or Scarrow. Thanks, Al. Scarrow or Scarrow. Honestly. Ah, and then we get another email from Al. Dear and the boys and J.R., I was intrigued by J.R.'s theory about Stephen Moffat casting a female master as a way of introducing a new level of win to the show. I do wonder, though, have we already seen both Moffat's master and Moffat's master's TARDIS? After all, Professor Crenotis wasn't just hiding a book. It'd be the grand fromages type of thing as well, hidden in plain sight, and not meaning what you first thought it meant. And the actor in question expressed a desire to play a part in at least one interview. Who knows, eh? Yours curatively, Al. And, as usual, I didn't have any idea whatsoever what Al know was going on about in that email, but I loved the email anyway. Uh, oh, a few more. We've got one here from Declan May, old friend of the show who's even been on it. He says, Dear J.R., Mark, Simon and Lee, having stayed silent too long and yet and let young whippersnappers like Al Nope and that ridiculous Hullo Porridge dominate and putrefy the listeners' correspondence section of your wonderful electronic podcast, I feel it time that sanity be restored. I've just listened to the anniversary review episode and enjoyed it immensely. However, I found myself quite disappointed in the whole picking, no, not a euphemism, J.R., in An Adventure in Space and Time, coming from Mr. Starberth Southall's lips. Really, J.R., and I say this with love, affection, and a degree of arousal, I think you are watching that film with the eyes of a well-informed fan rather than a normal viewer. It was well-structured, well-written, funny, touching, beautiful, and informative, and I think Mark Gatiss knows what beats to hit and buttons to press in order to make a cohesive and enjoyable biopic for a mainstream audience. No easy task, believe me. Yes, certain characters have had to become amalgamations or thinly drawn caricatures, and there has to be some snappy, sketch-like scenes in order to push the complicated and intricate story along. As for the final scene with Matt Smith, well, that was absolutely perfect. Instead of taking one out of the drama, I felt it added a final emotional and dramatic punch that resonated long after the credits had ended. Anyway, apart from that, the Blue Box podcast continues to entertain and continues to be, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the best Doctor Who podcast out there. Thanks, Declan. You can keep up comments like that. Uh, keep up the great work, gentlemen, and from now on, only accept correspondence from people with proper names. Sincerely, Declan Herzog Chate Key Grate Hummus Reverend Milk Thistle May retired. Yeah. Actually, Declan, I don't think my problem was that it was wasn't fanish enough. I think my problem was that it was too fanish. I think I think Mark Gatiss didn't take enough of the fanishness out of it. But anyway, that's a matter for a previous podcast. The Great Intelligence. He says, Here's a quick fun question for all you podcasters and bloggers. 
and he actually sent this out on Gallifrey Base as well as in a private message to the podcast. So, are you ready? Did anyone, up until a few weeks ago, ever, I repeat, ever, use the word iteration before about anything at all? Suddenly, the use... Instead of the use of incarnation to refer to the Doctor, we have podcasters using this new word iteration, perhaps to account for the confusion over the numbering of the Doctors. I understand. This was this I was prepared to forgive, except now we have J.R. Southall talking about Clara Oswald's iterations. That's when I almost crashed the car and had to reiterate myself to survive. So here is my challenge. Without looking it up... Without looking it up online or in a dictionary, I dare someone to even know what an iteration even is. Podcasters, spontaneously ask your fellow hosts to define it. Oh, and then look at it, look it up in a dictionary. It will certainly be an iterating thing to do. <laughs> kind regards the great intelligence in his Richard E. Grant iteration. Do you know, though, that's the funny thing. Before I started using the word, I too had noticed how much it seemed to be coming up on particularly American podcasts. And so I did think about it before I started using it. But if you think about what a reiteration means, then the iteration part means variations on a theme. To reiterate something is to repeat something with an embellishment or, you know, some kind of an addition in order to make the point clearer or in some way to make a new point about the same point, which is exactly what you have when the Doctor regenerates and exactly what you had with the three different versions of Clara. And so, having thought about this before I started using the word, I didn't actually have a problem with the use of the word iteration at all. For after all, in order for you to be able to reiterate something, there must be an iteration, and the word iteration must therefore exist, for that to follow. Um, oh, Andrew Moore. Here's another email from Andrew Moore. This is one that came before, obviously, his email about the time of the Doctor. He says, Now that I have caught up with your past shows, I can devote all my attention to your most recent additions. With all the backwards and forwards stuff of the last few months, it's been more mind-bending than a Moffat arc. Something you said in your look-back-slash-Christmas show has really set the brain ticking. Your theory around Smith's Doctor ending up as a self-contained story is one I can see coming true, but to me it begs the question, how much did Russell T. Davis know about the Moff's plans? After all, it was he who wrote the cataclysmic TARDIS remodelling regeneration that led to Smith's Doctor meeting Amy and setting the arc in motion. The writer's tale mentions conversations between the two writers, but it would be interesting to know how much, if any, story input Moffat had. If you noticed, I didn't use the numbering system in the above, as by the time you read this out, it may all have changed again anyway. Can you please pass on my compliments of the season to all of the chaps and keep up the good work? P.S. Is it inevitable that Smith's last word will be Geronimo? Well, I'm sorry, Andrew. Unfortunately, it transpires that Smith's last word wasn't Geronimo. <coughs> As for, sorry, as for whether uh, Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis had talked about all this, allowing Russell T. Davis to write the exploding TARDIS into the end of David Tennant's last story, in order for Stephen Moffat to use a similar idea across his four years, well, it transpired that my Smith, my, my theory about 
the Matt Smith's Doctor being a self-contained story turned out not to be true, or at least not in the way I conceived it as being. And the exploding TARDIS turned out to not be as big a part of that self-contained story necessarily as it might have been. Although if you think about it, obviously that exploding TARDIS and the ramifications of what happened after it exploded have run through the entire four years. So I did wonder, and I did email Andrew about this afterwards as well, I did wonder if the exploding TARDIS at the end of David Tennant's tenure came about not just because Stephen Moffat wanted to start Matt Smith with a new TARDIS interior and therefore Russell T Davis was giving Stephen Moffat an excuse to remodel the TARDIS without having to explain it away himself but perhaps also because what with the amount of foreshadowing we've seen from Stephen Moffat lately Perhaps Stephen Moffat seeded that idea into Russell T. Davis' last story in order to foreshadow the fact that the idea would be resounding throughout the next four years of Doctor Who. Who knows? That's a conversation that may have happened, it may not. And it might be that Stephen Moffat used that idea after Russell T. Davis had already used it and had set the idea into Stephen Moffat's mind. I don't suppose we'll ever know if Stephen Moffat doesn't come up with a version of the writer's tale of his own, and he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who will. But you never know. Um, Richard, Three more emails. Richard Hoggar says, Hey guys, loving the podcast. For me, this year, as you guys have put it, is a great year to be a Doctor Who fan. The year has been filled with great shows, DVDs, books and audio, and more. My personal highlight was finding the podcast. You guys make my days when they are bad, listening to the very funny, in-depth reviews of the episodes. So thank you so much. Whilst this year has been about celebrating the past, I eagerly look forward to the future, what you have up your sleeves and what my favourite Time Lord gets up to. I wish you all a happy Christmas and a very good and prosperous New Year. To which I emailed Richard back and told him that actually we make it up as we go along and so we don't actually have any plans at all. Except to say that about a week ago I did make a plan for an episode that will take place next September but I'm not going to spoil you all by telling you what it is. But there'll be a couple of very special guests on in September and uh, unless you've forgotten between now and then, which I assume you probably will have, You'll have to wait those nine months to find out who they are. Uh, Sean M. Vale says, After all these years, I still don't know how Doctor Who fans can be so stupid. In the 50th anniversary episode, the real Doctor fan, Osgood, the woman with the scarf, got her inhaler back when she tripped up the Zygon with the Zygon's fake scarf. She then got her inhaler back. So it was the human who gave the Zygon the inhaler when she was having an asthma attack. Hmm. I'm not quite sure I followed what Sean was saying there, or even that Sean followed what Sean was saying there, and having watched that episode twice, I'm still not sure I entirely follow what was happening there, except to say that that scene was included just to show that the Zygons and the humans were going to be able to get along if they had to, and that they were having to. So, uh... (laughs) He says, I also love the fact that the three, or one, most genius people in the universe didn't try to see if the door of their cell was unlocked. Typical intelligent person thinking, 
overthinking things. <laughs> His favourite part of the story is when Clara speaks to the John Hurt Doctor. It's really wonderful. Sean, thank you for the email. And thank you everybody for all your emails. And I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. There is one email left to do. Uh, it's from Trim Trawarth. It's from Tim Trawarther. He says, Dear JR and the Blue Box crew, aka Simon, Mark and Lee. Well, just thought I'd send you, I'd send you lot this electronic missive to firstly inform you all what a grand podcast you boys de- deliver. I'm a Johnny come lately to the whole podcast thing, and yours is one of the best. Keep up the good work. I am currently going through your vast back catalogue of work despite trying to catch up on all that I have missed. I loved the recent episodes and I have a suggestion for a possible red button episode if they, whoever they are, decide to make a series of an adventure in space and time. How about a minisode looking at the making of Who Cares Seminal Doctor in Distress single? I think that would be blooming marvellous. You could have Clive from Rose playing Ian Levine, and Mark Gators can make a cameo as the guy from Buck's Fizz. This needs to happen, or perhaps not. Another point, in discussing the recent Doctor numbering kerfuffle, no one has brought up the Morbius Doctors, i.e. the production team circa 1975. I know there is conjecture whether or not these were the Doctor or Morbius, But let me point this out to you fine scholars of Doctor Who. Is it a coincidence that Night of the Doctor was set on Khan? Hmm? My point is, it doesn't really matter if Matt Smith is Doctor 11, 12, or 2456. He is the Doctor. He's the same dude, and he's the best. Well now, I have rabbited on a bit, haven't I? One last thing before I go, JR. The reason for the incredibly small amount of Wheel in Space target novels is that there was a fire at the warehouse where they were being stored and a bunch got destroyed. Thus a small print run became an even smaller print run, and thus why copies go for a cool million pounds on yon intraweb. And with that, I, bonjour, I bid you all a fond farewell. Regards, Tim Trewarther. No witty alias as yet, lads, but believe me, I am working on it. P.S. I don't really want them to make a series of an adventure in space and time. Oh my giddy aunt, how painful would that be? Nice idea, though. The idea of Clive from Rose playing Ian Levine. Oh, I have to say, when he first brought up the idea of uh, somebody doing a making of the Doctor in Distress signal, I almost fainted. But when he suggested that, oh, I'd just love to see it. And as for the point about uh, the Wheel in Space novels... I have to admit, that was news to me, if if it's true, and I've no reason to suspect it isn't true. So actually that explains a lot, because Wheel in Space does seem to be, in particular, the one target novel that is the rarest and goes for the most money on eBay. And true to my promise to uh, Toby Haydock, Haydock, I have been following Wheel in Space as one of my saved searches on eBay ever since we recorded that interview, and I have not been able to find him a copy at a price that was worth paying in order to give him a late Christmas present. So I'm sorry, Toby. Just in case you are listening to this, still no copy of the Wheel in Space for you. However, many, many listeners to the Blue Box podcast out there, all donations gratefully received. Just kidding. Well, I know this is rather a shorter episode than usual, but all by myself... So, I think you've had as much of me as you probably would normally have. So, I think I'll just wish you all a Happy New Year. 
and uh, we'll be back in a week's time to address the time of the Doctor and so much more besides. Let's just hope 2014 is even a fraction of as interesting and entertaining a year as 2013 has been. And you know what? I have the strangest feeling that it very probably will be. We'll speak again soon. <laughs>